0: You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Newton, North Carolina. By God's grace and for his glory, we're striving to be a community of disciples who are growing in trust, growing in love, and growing disciples. We pray you'll be encouraged to deeply love and trust our Savior Jesus Christ through this ministry. We hope you enjoy the sermon. This morning... We are studying a passage in Genesis 14 that um, you may have never heard. I don't think I've ever heard this passage preached. It's actually referenced a lot. It's referenced in the book, especially the book of Hebrews, also one time in Psalm 110. But, but the, the passage, as it's being referenced, all the focus of the, of the attention really goes on this mysterious person that we meet in Genesis 14, this king called Melchizedek. But what we want to do this morning, I'm going to save that conversation to another date. We will, we will delve into, into, more depths of, of the identity of Melchizedek in weeks to come. But today I want us to focus in on this passage to see what does this passage mean for us. And this is a great question for us to ask this morning at 9 a.m. on Sunday while you're watching a TV screen. Why in the world should I stay awake on my comfy couch to hear this obscure passage preached? I want to remind you why this passage is important and it's, it's linked to what God is doing. What God is doing right now in the world is the same thing God was doing when Moses sat down to write the book of Genesis. God is working to build for himself a people. A people for his own possession who have been purified from every lawless deed and who are zealous For good deeds. Moses wrote this book as God's people were rescued out of slavery, getting ready to receive the law of God and then to go to be his people in the land that was promised, which is exactly what God is doing today. This is like the foundation work that he uses to build this people. These are things that the people of God need to know in their souls. And this passage, once again, I see this passage like a hammer. That's just driving the stake of faith deep into the hearts of his people. As he builds a people who trust him. A people who trust him not just with their lips, but with their lives. A people who will say with their lives, with Paul, from him and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. I want to just appeal... To you, I believe that everybody needs to hear this passage. People who've been Christians for years need to hear this passage. People who are just looking into the claims of Christ need to hear this passage. People who think they've been Christians for a long time but who aren't need to hear this passage. And and this morning, I'm I'm especially um, burdened to say to children, you need to hear what is in this passage. And so I just want to put this out here to children who are listening at home that when we go on our Zoom call in just a few minutes, I'm going to ask you some questions. So I want you to pay very careful attention as as this passage is preached. And here's a question I'm going to ask you. Why is it that cheating is so wrong? Why is it that lying is so wrong? What is it about stealing that makes it so wrong? And what is it about thankfulness that's so good? Let's, uh, let's, let's take a look at Genesis chapter 14. I'm going to start reading in verse 17 to the end of the chapter. Then, after his, speaking of Abram, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you would say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Anir, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is like a hammer. It is able to shatter the hardest of hearts. Father, we are very quick to build protections around ourselves. We are very quick to try to build a record of righteousness around ourselves. We are very quick to see ourselves at the very center of the universe. I pray that you would use your word like a hammer this morning. A hammer that breaks... And then that heals. I pray that you would draw your people. Closer and closer to the Savior. I pray Lord that you would bring. Real. Lasting. Deep conviction of sin. That even today. That you might call people to yourself. They would have Jesus. To live for his glory forever. And to enjoy him. Forever. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we spent the last two weeks on the story of Abram's courageous, miraculous rescue of his nephew Lot. Let me just remind you of the story. So what we saw, two teams. We saw first team A that is, is led by the king of Sodom. Whose name, is his actual name, Barah, means evil. We saw that, that they were serving this other, even probably more wicked king, this king Chetala'amir that came away from what is now the, the territory of Iran, Iraq. So here, they're serving Chetala'amir, paying him tribute every year. They decide to rebel. Chetala'amir says, I don't think so. Amer comes to discipline them, and discipline them he does. In, in fact, the text is very clear that these these got absolutely spanked by Chetala'amir. Not only did he defeat them on the battlefield, but then he went through their towns and he took anything that he thought was valuable, including people. And we saw as we looked through this text that one of the people that were kidnapped by this wicked king and taken off into captivity was Abram's nephew that he loved, Lot. Word gets back to Abram and little Abram responds. And he gathers together 318 of his men that he had trained as warriors and some of his allies and they head out to chase down Chedorlaomer. They chase him down. They attack him at night, dividing their forces. They defeat him, chase him out of the promised land and now they're on their way back. Look at verse 16. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people I read this and I'm just imagining what it must have been like to march back home having won a victory like that nobody whenever they left off nobody expected them even to come back I can just imagine Sarah kissing her husband goodbye and saying I know you have to do this but feeling in her heart I know this is the last time I'm going to see my husband can you imagine on that trek back having won this battle? The stories that are being told night after night around campfires? Can you believe? I can never, have you ever seen a 75 year old man wield a sword like that? I, 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 there, were, there was a time in that battle I thought I was gone, and here he came from behind. Can you imagine the stories that get told? This is amazing. They never saw us coming. It's at night. We're freaking them out. Some of us are coming this way. Some of us are coming this way. And we won. Can you imagine the cheers and the praise when all those POWs were released? And now they're on their last leg of their trip back home and they get greeted, congratulated, first by the king of Sodom, whose people had been rescued, and then also by the king of Salem. In verses 17 through 24, there's a feast for these victorious warriors. And I think there is a message that we don't want to miss. The first thing that I want you to notice is this. I hope. Yeah, can you just forward it for me? <laughs> I want you to notice the contrast between two very different kinds of kings. This is, this is less like a point and more like a theme. So I'm just going to introduce this and then we'll see it again as this story unfolds. Take a look at verse 17. Then after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was a priest of God Most High. Abram's coming home, and in the king's valley, this is where kings would meet to, to conduct official business or, 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 or just to, to meet and to socialize. Abram there, treated like a king, is greeted by these two kings. And in some, way, some ways, both of them are to celebrate Abram's victory, but I want you to notice that they're celebrating in two very different ways and with two very different motives. First, we see in verse 17 that the king of Sodom, came out to meet him. And this this makes sense, right? Look at verse 11. When they had took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, su- food supply and departed. And in verse 12 and verse 16, make it clear that food and property weren't the only thing that was captured, but also lots of people. And so my guess is that the king of Solomon is glad to see the citizens of his country, the workers in his country, the foundation of his economy coming back home, but probably also even his close friends and family coming home safely. And verse 21 tells us that he came in part to get his people back. But I want you to notice that there's another man who came to greet Abram, Melchizedek. And again, this is a mysterious figure. We'll talk about him in depth at a later time. But today, I simply want to focus on what the text tells us about him. Look at verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was a priest of God Most High. Notice what the text says. First, we're, we're, we're told his name, Melchizedek. It's translated, literally, the king of righteousness. Who, who stands, by the way, in sharp contrast with, with Bera, king of Sodom, whose name means evil. Melchizedek is defined, is identified here as the king of Salem, that is the king of Jerusalem. And we're told that he is a priest of God Most High. I want you to notice the difference of how these two kings greet Abram. Verse 17 says that the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram, it seems like, mostly to get his stuff back. But in verse 18, we see that the king of Salem came out not to get anything, but to give. He didn't just come out, he brought out bread and wine, this feast for these returning warriors. And he had a blessing on his lips. Blessed be Abram, God, blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. As we're going to see as this story unfolds, these two men represent two very different ways of viewing the world. Melchizedek serves as a reminder that Abram might have, have served as the captain of a victorious army. But in this fight, no, in the whole world, there is only one champion. Look at how Melchizedek, the king of Salem, blesses Abram. Look at verse 19. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. There's only four little lines in the text, but they are packed with truth that I I want us to hear. First notice how Melchizedek describes Abram. Blessed be Abram of God Most High. Not, behold Abram the valiant warrior. Not, behold Abram the courageous conqueror. Not, behold Abram the wise strategist. No, Abram is great because Abram is blessed. I love how he says it. Blessed be Abram of God most high. Abram's identity is the one who's receiving the blessing of the most high God. N- notice with me that that what this priest of God reminds us about God. Our God is high. But notice that he's not just high. Our God is most high. Whatever it is that we might might want, whatever it is that we might want to pursue, whatever it is that we think might give us satisfaction in life, notice that there's no one higher. Isn't that good to hear? There's no one higher for you to pursue. In, In heaven and on earth, in all the universe, there is no one, nothing better or higher than him. Keep a look in verse 19. Our God is the possessor of heaven and earth. This word possessor is is very interesting. It could be translated as creator, but, but it also has this idea of owner. The one who creates is also the one who then owns. God is the one who created. And as creator, He not only owns it all, He rules it all from the highest heaven all the way down to the tiniest details on earth. This is good for my heart to hear as we watch the news and as we watch this virus spread throughout the country. It is good for us to remind our hearts that our God, the Lord, is God Almighty, the possessor of heaven and earth melchizedek is affirming something that ought to be clear to us by now from our study of Genesis. Think all the way back to Genesis one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. And then He fills the earth with plants and animals and then with people. In, verse, in, in chapter 2, verse 16, He gives the man commandments. Why is it that God is, has the authority to give commandments to the man? To say there's some things you can do and there's some things you can't do The answer is because he is the creator and the possessor of heaven and earth. In chapter 3, the devil tempts Adam and Eve to disobey him. And guess what God does? He punishes them by banishing them from the garden. How do you have authority, God, to do that? The answer is because he is the possessor of heaven and earth. In in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he makes a promise of what he's going to do in the thousands of years that are in the future. You think about that for a second. We don't even know, especially with this virus, we don't even know what's going to happen next week. How is it that God can make a promise for what he's going to do thousands of years later? And the answer is, it's because he is the possessor of heaven and earth. We could go on and on. He destroys the whole world with a flood. He killed every living thing, only saving a, a handful of animals and eight people. He has the power and the right to do that. Why? Because he is the possessor of heaven and earth. In chapter 11, the whole human race rebels against him. He, They tried to make themselves the most high, but then he snaps it. His fingers he scatters their plans moves them all throughout the whole earth and you see he, he wants to make perfectly clear that he is god most high the possessor of heaven and earth in chapter 12 1 through 3 he chooses one man And he promises that one man that his blessing is going to rest on him. How is it that God has the authority to choose this man and not that man? And the answer is because he is the possessor of heaven and earth. You hear what I'm saying. We come to chapter 14 and we ask, how is it that this old man takes 318 of his servants on a mission to fight an alliance of four kings that nobody has come close to defeating, how is it that he won? And the answer is because that God is God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. Isn't that the point that Melchizedek is making in this passage? Look at verse 19. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. How is it possible that Abram won that war? And the Bible is very clear. If you look at the word used in verse 17, we saw it multiple times earlier in chapter 14, the defeat, that he didn't just defeat Chetelah Amer, he put a smackdown on Chetelah Amer. The, The writer of Hebrews called it a slaughter. How? How is that possible? And the answer is, according to verse 20, that God delivered Abram's enemies into his hands. Our hearts need to hear this. The horse is prepared for the day of battle. But victory belongs to the Lord, Proverbs twenty-one. God is a possessor of heaven and earth, and he is, and I quote, is not restrained to save by many or by few, first Samuel fourteen, six. Not by power, nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah four, chapter six. We need to notice that Abram gets it. He totally agrees. With this blessing from Melchizedek. Look at the end of verse 20. He, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. That's what grateful people do. In the Old Testament, when the harvest was brought in. The people of Israel would give the first fruits, the very first, before they fed their families, before they feasted, the very first of what they got from their crops would go to the Lord. They would give them to a priest of God, offering them up to the Lord in saying, This was from you, and all that I have is yours. It's, it's, it's why we continue. It's why Christians today still give, give to the church, I mean, give to, give to God out of the, the very first of what they receive even before they pay any bills. And by doing that, we're saying all this is from you. Every dime in this check belongs to you. Lord, you are the one who gives the power to make wealth. And here is where this, this contrast between Melchizedek and the king of Sodom comes back up. Look at verse 21. Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Now I don't know what's going on in the king of Sodom's heart, but I'm wondering if he's not getting a little nervous as he watches Abram give a tenth of everything to to this character Melchizedek. Notice what he says in verse 21. There's no blessing on his lips. There's no praise. There's no thankfulness. He simply says, give the people to me. And take the goods to yourself. We need to notice he doesn't seem to see the hand of God at all. Abram, you're the one who fought for this. You're the one who deserved this. You're the one who put your neck on the line. You deserve it all. Take it all. And, and And it makes sense in a secular mind that Abram is the one who took the risk. Abram is the one who put his life on the line. Abram would, from a secular standpoint, deserve everything. But I want you to notice what Abram does. Look at verse 22. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn, literally the text says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Anir, Ishko, and memory, let them take their share. That's amazing. When you to think about what Abram's saying? Abram's saying, "I don't want anybody to ever get the idea that I have what I have because of you i, I don 't want one thread of what is yours i didn 't go there to get stuff i don 't I, I want the world to know that whatever I get, I get it from the hand of the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth You, you see what this text is calling us to This is This text is calling us to diligent, obedient, dependent, thankful faith in God who is God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. Step step back for a second and I want you to notice what what God has been, been booing, driving this point home since the very beginning of this book. Think about Adam and Eve. Eve sees a piece of fruit. That God has provided. The Bible says that that fruit was a delight to the eyes. And it was desirable because it made one wise. She had this promise that if she ate it, that she would become like God, knowing good and evil. She wanted to be wise the way God was wise. And so the Bible says that she took and she ate it want you to notice that that, that that's more, that there's more going on there than just than just Eve disobeying a direct command of God. What's going on there is unbelief is showing itself in Eve's heart. Hadn't God already made it clear that He's going to provide all the trees of the garden you may eat? And hasn't God already made it clear that when He created Adam and Eve, He created them in His image? They're already like God. And she didn't trust the Lord. She saw what she wanted, and she took it. She took care of herself. Think about Cain, jealous that Abel's offerings are pleasing to the Lord, and he wasn't. He didn't trust the Lord. He didn't consult the Lord. No, he saw what, what he what he hated, and he tried to take care of himself, and he killed his brother. Look at, look back to Genesis chapter four. In verse twenty three. Lamech said to his wives, "This is one of Cain's descendants." Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. This is a picture of a man who is committed. I take care of myself. That stands in contrast. Notice the next verse. Adam had relations with his wife again and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth for for she said God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel for Cain killed him. To Seth to him also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Do you see this contrast between Lamech who is going to take care of himself and then the descendants of Seth who call upon the name of the Lord who say to the Lord Lord I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. My one defense. My righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. Genesis chapter 6, verse 2. We see the sons of God. They saw beautiful women. Women that God had forbidden. And they wanted them, and so they took them. We saw this in Genesis 11. Look over Genesis 11. The Tower of Babel. Why are they building this city? In the very middle of verse Or, we're told they're building this city because they want to make a name for themselves. Now compare that to chapter 12, verse 2. When God comes to this man, Abram. Did Abram deserve the blessing of God? Here's Abram with his father and grandfather worshiping idols in Ur of the Chaldeans. God comes to Abram and he he speaks blessing on Abram. And look at the promise made to Abram. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you shall be a blessing. In in chapter 10, verse 20, Abram gets really off track. He didn't trust God to protect him and he lied to protect himself and he's absolutely humiliated. In Genesis chapter 13, we see this once again. We see this theme, Lot saw what he wanted, the very best portion of the land and so he chose it. And here's the key phrase in verse 10, for himself. Do you see what God is saying? God is building for Himself a people. Not a people who take, but a people who trust. God is building for Himself a people, but a a diligent people, but a people who in their diligence are dependent. God is building for Himself a people who obey, but they don't obey so that God will give them what they want. They obey because they believe. They trust Him. They don't want something from Him. We want him this is so important for us to get this is important for my heart to hear because I can so easily be driven by guilt what I'm doing might look loving but, but too often it's just that I don't like how guilt feels it's easy for me to be driven by a desire to succeed and by an absolute fear of failure. And on the outside, it might look like diligence, it might look like a good work ethic, but but often it's not, It's it's just selfishness. This is especially heinous when you're in ministry. Because you have to ask yourself, Am I making that call? Am I making that visit? Be- because I, 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 am I preparing this this sermon because I love God's people, or because I don't want to let people down, or or, or because I don't want to disappoint, or I don't want to look like an idiot in front of the whole world on Facebook Live, or because I don't, I want to be praised for my teaching, or because I want to be admired as a loving shepherd, and on top of all that, maybe I'm working hard. But, Because I really want to love people and do them good. But here's the question. Whose power am I working on? Here's a prayer I wrote down as I studied this passage. Oh, Father, I am so guilty of doing things in my own power. It is so obvious to me that I don't have the power to change or convert or encourage anybody. I can't do anything. But I have this stubborn idea that if I work hard enough, read the right books, listen to the right people and the right wisdom, that I can have success in ministry. Oh, Father, I repent. I want a Godward life that knows deep in my soul that everything comes from You. That knows deep in my soul that anything good coming from me or through me is coming from You. If we get this, this will will change our lives. Listen to Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards a city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. For He gives to His beloved even in his sleep. In everything that we put our hand to, If there's going to be victory, it's because the Lord gives victory. That's why stealing is so wrong. Think about what you're saying about God when you steal. God's not going to take care of me. I've got to do that. This is why lying is so wrong. God's not going to take care of me. The God of truth, who loves truth. Truth isn't good. Truth is not what's needed. No, i got to trust myself to take care of me. This is why cheating is so wrong. And this is why thankfulness is so right. It's an act of faith. Everything that I have comes from Him. And, and even if it costs me a bucket full of sweat, that's from Him too. It, 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 isn't that exactly how, how Paul talks? 1 Corinthians 15. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. It's all from Him. It's all of grace. This is, this is, this is critically important. This literally is the difference between you going to heaven and you going to hell. there's this there's this notion and I hear it all the time yes I need to trust but I also have to obey and 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 what people seem to be saying by that is that yes yes there needs to be faith but obedience is also required I want to be very clear believing that is how very religious people go to hell we didn't notice, that's not what the Bible tells There's only one thing that God wants, just one. He calls us to one thing. What, what is the one work that Jesus calls us to do that's actually not a work, it's a gift? The one thing that He wants from us is for us to trust Him. We are made right with God. The Bible is crystal clear romans 4 5 the whole book of romans romans chapter 5 that that we are made right with god by grace alone through faith alone but if we trust him it'll be quite natural for us to obey him because we trust his heart we trust his wisdom we trust his goodness we trust his power of course we're going to obey but, but the kind of obedience that faith produces is, a, is, is, a, is, a, is an obedience that continues to depend. It's diligent and dependent at the exact same time. We're talking about a, a faith. We're not talking about faith plus works. We're talking about a faith like Abram's faith that trusts, that loves, that leans, that depends, and therefore it follows. Diligent, obedient, obedient, Dependent faith that works because it trusts that God is at work. Let let, let me show you this. Look over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For is so important. I encourage you to circle that word in your Bible, underline it, highlight it just like it is in mine. For, why should you work out your salvation with fear and trembling? For, here's why, here's how, because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good Pleasure. We say this every week. This kind of faith trusts God to equip you in every good thing to do His will. Him working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. You see? It's Romans 11.36. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. I hope that you're beginning to get a little glimpse of what this would look like in your life. This is the gospel. I bring nothing to the table. Nothing to the table except my sin. I trust Jesus to live a perfect life in my place. I trust Jesus to bear the guilt and shame and punishment that my sins deserve. I trust Jesus to please God for me. I trust Jesus to do God's work through me. Do you think about what will happen if we get this? Not only will we not lie, cheat, or steal, but but there won't be any basis in our lives for pride. There will be no basis, no room in our lives for us thinking that I'm better than anybody else. No room, no occasion whatsoever for gossip. If we got this gospel... That everything is coming to us from Christ. That even the desire to work for Him, the desire to obey, the ability to obey, all of that is flowing from Christ. There'll be no reason, no room, no the gossip won't even come into our mind. Or looking down on somebody else. What do I have that I did not receive? Did you see? No more comparing myself to others. No more worrying. No more trying to control my situation or the people around me. No more working and working and working out of fear of failure or to make a name for ourselves. No more complaining because I don't think I have what I deserve. And no more ingratitude. No more despair when I fail. Only repentance and faith you look at the text look back at genesis 14 and you tell me how much credit does abram get in this passage how much credit does abram take for himself in this passage is abram's identity in his might or in his courage or in his great military strategy how much how much does abram think he deserves It's all from God, the Most High, the Possessor, the Creator, the Ruler of heaven and earth. And so Abram says, this is not about me. It's from Him. It's through Him. It's for Him. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, is so clear in the text. And yet this is absolutely impossible unless you work this into our lives. And so I pray that we would, that we would learn to trust you by first trusting you to give us grace to trust you. Father, your word says that faith is a gift. And so I pray, Father, that we would depend upon you for everything. I pray that you would make us a people who are diligent. But not diligent out of fear. And certainly not diligent out of pride. Father, I pray that we would be diligent because we're dependent. Because we trust our King we're diligent because we know we we encourage ourselves not with wins at the end not with ribbons and prizes not with money not with status not with people's approval but that we would we would we would encourage ourselves knowing that we work because he's working in us father i pray that you would make us a people who are diligent all the way to the end because we trust our christ for everything all the way to the end and i pray this in jesus name Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the First Baptist Newton podcast. If you want to learn more, check out our website at newtonfbc.org. We'll see you next time.